0: And from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, welcome to Louisiana Considered, I'm Adam Voss. Coming up on the show, a conversation about the visual arts and the performing arts in Louisiana's capital city. The Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge turns 50 this year. That's a half century of advocating for the arts. We're going to talk with the Arts Council about what it takes to keep the arts alive in Baton Rouge. Also a conversation, all things Boudin, with Robert Carricker, founder of BoudinLink.com. That's later on the program. But first, black communities in the Gulf South have long grappled with pollution and contamination, whether in the water they drink or the air that they breathe. In Jackson, Mississippi and Birmingham, Alabama, residents have long been fighting back against the consequences of years of pollution. Now, residents of these two southern cities are joining forces to advocate for continued awareness. For more, we're joined by environmental justice reporter Danny MacArthur from the Gulf States Newsroom. Danny, thanks for coming here to tell us about your reporting.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, first of all, can you give us a little bit of that historical context? Tell me a little bit about the history of contamination, environmental contamination in both of these cities. What makes the two cities kind of similar in the problems that they face?
1: Absolutely. So in Birmingham, we're talking about a long history of coke plants, um, and that is responsible for a good bit of air pollution. It impacts the mostly Black neighborhoods that are located in North Birmingham. And then in Jackson, um, with the water crisis, we're talking about a majority Black city with a really old water infrastructure, and there really hasn't been a lot of resources put into updating that infrastructure. And because of that, it's become increasingly vulnerable over the years. We saw that with the 2021 ice storm. We saw it again in August with flooding. It's just kind of like each time the pipes can't handle it. So we're talking about a lot of folks being left without water.
0: And in your reporting you've been speaking with community activists in both places. Uh, who are they and how are they fighting back?
1: Yeah. So one would be Charlie Powell in Birmingham. He didn't necessarily start out wanting to be an activist, Um He kind of got into it because he went to a community meeting with a woman who's called the mother of the Superfund. Powell runs this environmental justice group there, um, and they are working to inform the community and rally them together to try to call attention to the problem they're facing and hold public officials accountable. And then in Jackson, they have this community-driven effort with the Mississippi Rapid Response Coalition. Um, It's a collective of more than 30 orgs that formed before the water crisis even began. Um, They actually formed around COVID-19, but the water crisis has kind of really brought them together to distribute clean water to residents.
0: Hmm. In Jackson and Birmingham, they are pretty similar cities. Both of them are in the Gulf South. Both of them are predominantly black and both face similar environmental challenges. What lessons can these two locations learn from each other?
1: Yeah. So, um, with the community members I talked to, they kind of shared like these different strategies they've come up with to kind of keep their issues at the forefront and not letting them be forgotten. Um, one is just keeping each other motivated. Um, in Birmingham, a large way they did this was through monthly meetings. Um, and they also emphasized doing your own research and not letting someone else define what the problem and the solution will be. And then in Jackson, a really big lesson was taking care of each other. So they've had to really push to provide for each other and just in ways that their elected officials and other leaders just haven't been doing.
0: So I'm sitting here in Baton Rouge, cities in Louisiana like Baton Rouge, and New Orleans. They have some similarities to Birmingham and Jackson. They're also majority black cities and they have their fair share of environmental concerns What could you say that Louisiana could learn from this collaboration between the Alabama and Mississippi cities? Is there room for Louisiana to join this Gulf South team of activists?
1: So, you know, Louisiana is dealing with a lot of the same issues that the other states in the Gulf South are dealing with. Um, We saw that with the recent Tulane study. Um, There were residents of color and that's mostly black folks who live near industry face like seven to 21 times more mission than white communities that live near industry. And you already have like activists and community organizers who are doing the same kind of work and they've been having some successes at keeping known pollutants from being able to make their environmental problems worse. A specific fight I'm thinking about would be with Formosa Plastics in the St. James Parish. Um, You know, the activists there were able to get these air permits tossed out. Obviously, that fight is still going on because like the company and the state environmental agency appealed that decision. But it's kind of similar to what's happening in North Birmingham with the Bluestone Coke plant that just got fined over $900,000 for environmental pollution. And if they were ever to reopen, there are these strict requirements that they must follow in order to get permits to operate. So, like, the lessons from community to community seem to be really broadly applicable.
0: Danny MacArthur covers environmental justice for the Gulf States newsroom. Danny, thank you for being here to share your reporting with us. Thank you. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. The Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge turns 50 this year, and they're holding a gala this Thursday downtown at the Cary Surage Community Arts Center to celebrate that milestone. And with us to talk about that, we have Renee Chatelain, president and CEO of the organization. Renee, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much. Great to be here.
0: So Renee, familiarize us a little bit about what the Arts Council is and what you do for arts and culture here in Baton Rouge.
2: We know, the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge is a regional arts council. There are nine such councils in the state of Louisiana, and we work closely with the Louisiana Division of the Arts. And so what we do is provide resources, education, advocate for our art sector and work for cross-sectors to make sure that our communities are successful because they are filled with art. So our mission is to foster the creative capacity and vibrancy of our region.
0: So where will we see you out and about town? What will we see you doing?
2: Around rather city, you may see us involved with public art installations. You may see us involved with festivals or, or leading those festivals. We also lead art summits and conferences. We work really closely with our chambers of commerce, with our city governments and municipalities, and of course, we are very passionate about art and education, so you'll see there's lots of different areas, um, all under the umbrella of the art and culture.
0: Yes, and the word greater is important there too. You talked about the parishes surrounding Baton Rouge as well, so it's not just a city of Baton Rouge thing. You mentioned the emergency fund. I'm just curious about that really quick. Is that something that came into gear during the, say, the 2016 floods, the hurricane, um, the pandemic?
2: You know, in Louisiana, right, we have no shortages of such natural emergencies and disasters. But yes, and it's part of our mid and our fabric that in 2015, when um, this area flooded and we stepped into action and created a plan to address needs in the community, such as social needs, then we tried to systemize, including training artists, doing any kind of background checks for the Red Cross and for FEMA so that we'd have easy access in and out of shelter spaces. And um, we're proud to say that, that what we developed was then taken in as a recommendation by FEMA and presented to the United Nations. So it's become part of what is a national group of art agencies that work to develop these plans and strategies.
0: Tell me about how the Arts Council got started 50 years ago and how the organization has changed since then.
2: You know, it's been so fantastic to go back and look at the 50 years and then to be able to interview some of the founders that are still with us. And my takeaway from it is how amazing citizens of any community are to volunteer and fill gaps. And what this group of people from various professions decided was that there needed to be a central place, an arts agency, where Communities who enjoyed the symphony or the offer of the ballet, but also grassroots artists, where they could go to learn, to thrive, to get advice. The, the Junior League of Baton Rouge to on a project, and so when they launched, I think there were 200 members of the community who were supporting this arts agency to be able to find grants and provide those kinds of resources. But now where we are, we look at the next 50 years, what can we do regionally and nationally to bring awareness to Louisiana and to our region about art and culture and the ways it enhances life.
0: Tell me, in your opinion, what are some of the Arts Council's biggest accomplishments over the past 50 years of its existence here in the capital city?
2: Well, I think you mentioned one of the things, and that is being the catalyst for really successful arts organizations in our area. So I know that Playmakers of Baton Rouge, which is, the you know, a professional children's theater company, was birthed at the Arts Council. I know that WRKF, the, the public radio station here in Baton Rouge, had its first broadcast in the conference room. The uh, Moving Colors began in the firehouse, you know, big room at the firehouse on Laurel Street. I think the other thing is individual artists that have gotten opportunity to the Arts Council who are now working throughout the world and are successful. One most recently, Brian Jordan Jr. Brian Jordan Jr. was part of the Debbie Allen Dance Project that was started at the Art Council of Greater Baton Rouge. And he now is on a TV show with the BEC. And I know um, Lear who who is a child actor at Playmakers, is now a very renowned director on Broadway and some of the founders of the Baton Rouge Gallery for Artists at the Art Council.
0: We're speaking with Renee Chadelain, president and CEO of the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge, which is celebrating its golden anniversary as an organization this Thursday in a gala event at the Carrie Siraj Community Arts Center in downtown Baton Rouge. Tell me about some of the challenges that the Arts Council and the arts in Baton Rouge in general have faced have faced over time.
2: I think that I think in the beginning and up until very recently, um, the arts were seen as something extra. Right. It was sort of this extra fluff on things that were more vital in the community. And, you know, we have more recently done a lot of advocating for the fact that the art are the very thing that not only make us human, but they are the very factor in deciding whether you want to live somewhere.
0: You mentioned it right there. Something I've noticed speaking to people involved in economic development one thing that is acknowledged is that we need things for people to do, things that attract people to the culture in our city, things that include the arts.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that there was real unawareness of that until recently, but I am so thrilled that it's happening now. And what we see now is a real understanding and awareness by other leaders outside of the art sector we are saying, wow, you're right. We now look at other cities who are embracing the art and funding it and investing in it as part of community development and city development. Those cities are thriving. They are the cities where everyone wants to live. So how do we make that happen? We need to invest.
0: Mm. And tell me what challenges are you facing now and how is the, the organization overcoming them? How is the arts community in Baton Rouge overcoming those? After all, we're talking about the arts coming out of pandemic times in a digital era.
2: I would think that the challenges now, that I mean, we're just coming out of, of course, this worldwide pandemic, where we're sort of reassessing everyone pressed the stop button and decided what is really important to them. And I think live performance and attending events and sort of a, a, an immediate challenge. At the same time, I think people realize that they really need it that interaction, that they really need is the in-person experience. You know, we have given the world jazz. We have failed, I think, to educate our own children about that great gift and to continue to cultivate it and monetize it. It's not just the jazz, but that Rouge has more more successful rappers for capita in that hip-hop culture than most other places in the entire United States. And yet we have not identified Ben do we celebrate them. But if we do a better job of presenting to investors, and what i have talking about investors, I mean to other people in the marketplace, about our value with data, then we will be able to come to the marketplace and be face to face and really negotiate something that's fair.
0: And lastly, relating to your event, your gala on Thursday, tell me a little bit about your art collection. I understand you're auctioning off some art on Thursday and people might recognize some of the names.
2: Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. We got a call earlier from a family, and it turns out that that family was directly connected to one of my predecessors, Garrett Gordon, who's a great artist and arts leader. You know, call it, I don't know, the universe, putting things together, or divine intervention, however you want to look at it. Pretty extraordinary that in this year, we would be contacted by some of the heirs of this work who were looking to offer it and, and to sell it and um, they had no idea of our connection and when we met it was really quite magical. And The collection really involved over 700 pieces of art, just an extraordinary number and, and we're going to be later this year doing an exhibition of the work. But for this party we you will see some very familiar names, Pablo Picasso, or Salvador Dali, John Scott, Um, You will see some really renowned artists that will be auctioned off as part of this collection with permission of the family. And we're just so thankful for that. But it's so exciting to see local art and the great masters of art together in this evening of fun and and silent option.
0: Renee Chatelain is president and CEO of the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge. The organization is celebrating 50 years in Baton Rouge with a gala Thursday at the Cary Suraj Community Arts Center in downtown Baton Rouge. Renee, thank you for being here with us. Oh,
2: thank you so much for having me.
0: From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Boudin, a guide to Louisiana's extraordinary link. Is a book that examines the history and cultural significance of this iconic and region defining food. Its author, Robert Carriker, is also the founder of BoudinLink.com, a website with taste test ratings for links in Louisiana and beyond. And Robert is the founder of the annual Boudin Cook Off, an annual celebration of Boudin held each October in Lafayette. With all things Boudin, Robert Caracer, aka Dr. Boudin, joins. Karen Henderson to talk a little bit more about this food.
3: Robert, Boudin 101. For those unfamiliar with Boudin, describe it for us. What are the ingredients? How is it made?
0: Right,
4: Boudin 101. That's a good, a good place to start. So, and and it's not without controversy. And you know, I'll say what it is, 101, and then some there will be some listeners who will say, well, no, it's not. And it, it needs to include this also. And how could you have forgotten this component? But at its at its basic traditional cajun creole boudin would be pork rice and seasonings in a casing and what makes it unique among sausages because so, there's some question is it really even a sausage um is that it's it's all cooked inside the casing it's already cooked and you don't ha- you don't get a raw product that you have to cook you really just have to warm it up
3: I have memories as a as a child in, in like Charles walking down from my grandparents' home to the corner store, Peggy's uh, corner store. And I was
4: I've been I've been to that corner oh store. Oh my
3: gosh. You know they have they did when I was growing up. They had boot in. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I mean, a I, lot yeah, people, I went
4: there to review their link uh, about four or six years ago. Oh,
3: my gosh. You know, it's been so many years I to know that they still have Boudin there. But I brought that up because, you know, that's a part of my, my childhood growing up here in Louisiana. I know you're not native born. You're from Washington State. So where right. and when did you even first encounter Boudin and, and how did that launch this major interest and love?
4: Right. Well, it's an interesting story, actually. So uh, I'm a history professor at UL Lafayette and I came here for a job interview. And this was I guess it was 1997. And as as part of the job interview, uh, you know, they they drive you around town. They show you this and they show you that they want to because I had no familiarity. I had no connection to Louisiana. And so they want to show me the lay of the land, so to speak. And and the the woman who took me out. We got to talking, of course, and she could tell that I was food interested and she said, oh, well, look, if if you're so interested in, you know, regional, cultural, unique foods, you have to try food. And I said, oh, okay, well, fine, let's do that. I had no idea what it was. Didn't know. So we went to her favorite place. She was from uh, Broussard, Louisiana. And so we went to B.O.'s Country Store and we walked in we went up to the meat case she ordered two links of boudin i still had no idea what what, what we were doing or what was going on and then we went out to her car and we sat in the parking lot and we ate uh we ate boudin and that is a very weird uh university professor interview component uh. that doesn't that sort of thing doesn't normally happen but i loved it i mean it was it was delicious and it was it was wonderful and it was an odd experience but uh nevertheless uh sort of you know I had no idea at the time, but where, where this might lead to. Well,
3: what it would launch you so, into. Well, I know being a history professor, I suppose it was a nat- you know natural for you to be curious about the history of this tasty South Louisiana Ling. Um, let's talk, I mean, tell me how, how that first experience and Hey, this yeah. is pretty good. What is Boudin? And I like Boudin. How did that right. become, I'm going to find out how this came to be studying the history and then Writing, I know this is your second edition, we're talking about that, but you've you've done another, right. uh, this is your second boudin guide.
4: From me initially trying it during that job interview, you know, then I go off and I get the job and I show up here and I'm I'm now an assistant professor. And in the the office, uh, they would, the, the secretary, the administrative assistant would frequently about once a week bring in boudin. You know, in other places they bring in scones, they might bring in donuts, they might bring in a fruit tray, something like that. <laughs> But here, she brought in a box, five pounds of boudin. And then as is apt to happen when people are trying boudin, they say, oh, wow, well, this is a really good link of boudin. But if you think this is good, you've got to try it from this other place. Oh, and then somebody else would say, no, 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 no. The best place is this other place. And so I started to actually go to the places that people would reference when they were talking about who has the best boudin. You know, within a short amount of time, I was able to participate in the conversation and say, Oh, well, you know, I actually did try it at Billy's, and this is what I found. And what I quickly started to recognize was I was doing that, but they had never done that. I thought to myself, Maybe I could be the person that creates a website that actually provides a guide and a sort of assessment to the different links that I find, and that then grew over the years to the point where I've reviewed over 200 links of boudin in Louisiana, but also in Boise, Idaho, and Washington, D.C., and Wisconsin. And then I decided, well, you know what? I go out and I travel the back roads and I find these great places for boudin, but it's, it's not easy for everybody. So I thought, well, why don't I hold a festival where I bring as many of these boudin makers to one location and they can sample their best and people can try it from 20 or 30 different places in one fell swoop. And then the next thing seemed to be, well, there should be an actual book to go along with this. And so I wrote the book and we're now into the second edition of the book.
3: My guest is Robert Carragher, author, of Boudin, A Guide to Louisiana's Extraordinary Link. This is your second edition. So what are the what are the main I asked the history, your history professor, and, and you know, we've most yeah. of us have tried Boudin, but you know, I, I know very little about the history of it. What did you find as you as you began to research the history?
4: So, uh, you know, a, a lot of different things that I didn't I didn't necessarily expect to find. The earliest reference to Boudin that I knew of was from the Lewis and Clark journals. Um, Lewis and Clark uh, were sent off by Thomas Jefferson to explore the American West and Louisiana Purchase. And there was a French fur trapper named Toussaint Charbonneau on that expedition. And in the journals of Lewis and Clark, uh, they actually make reference to that French uh, uh, interpreter, mountain man, uh, making boudin from bear and shoving it into bare intestine and it's actually a, a, an elaborate and a very uh vibrant discussion of how he dips it in the missouri river with two flits and a twirl and throws it on the fire and they they actually describe it as uh the most delicious thing they'd ever eaten and they they named they called it um a delicacy of the forest ah. So
3: this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, actually, <laughs> right? I'll be back to Luce. Yeah. Now, a fascinating history and I know you examined even examined it even further in your book. What are some of the other things that that you you've included? I know um, there are everything from the history to actual locations.
4: Absolutely. And the people who are making Boudin today are are not making it in a vacuum. They're making it as part of this continuum of history. One of the things that I wanted to do in the book was delve into who are these people who devote themselves to making this product. Time and time and time again, what I found was it, it was a sort of calling to them and they're all doing it intentionally fully aware of its connection to the broader culture. So I don't highlight them just because they might make a good link of Boudin, but I wanted to know their story because I think people are interested in their stories.
3: Robert Carricker, author of Boudin, A Guide to Louisiana's Extraordinary Link. Dr. Boudin, thank you for your time.
0: Absolutely. That's Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening.
3: Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets,
2: a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.